everybody. I'm missing my story family today. I wish I could be with y'all. As it turns out, uh, Pastor Gio and I are up in Arkansas picking up our daughter from camp. But I really wanted to be with you to end this sermon series, The Power of Dad. So I figured the best way to do that might be to record this message. And so I'm here on video. This message is so dear to my heart. And so I just want to dig right in with you and talk about leadership today, the ways fathers lead our families. So let's dig in. You know, I was thinking, um, everyone sort of expects a Christian like me to stand here and say that Christian men should lead. Um, everyone expects me to say that as a pastor that Christian men should lead their families and kind of rule their families and that wives and children should submit to the man's God-given authority because the man is the man. And it kind of makes me sad, honestly, when we think about Christian masculinity or Christian male leadership in this way because it's just so far removed from reality. In reality, the Bible doesn't call men to lead with an iron fist or to lord over his wife or to lord over his children. The Bible does call men to be leaders in our homes, but we just don't talk enough about how men are supposed to lead, what it means to lead in a biblical way. And so I really wanted to, to dig deeper uh, in, in that today and into that idea and talk with you all more about it. Um, I think what happens in our culture today is we, we have this inherent mistrust of leadership. We think that um, leaders w are naturally going to lord over their subject. We think leaders are always manipulative. We expect to be manipulated by those in power. And um, people, I think, today are confusing leadership with control. And so when the Bible says men should lead our families, people who aren't super familiar with what that means might hear the Bible saying that men should control our families. We should manipulate those around us and subdue our wives and our kids. But that's not really what the Bible has to say about fathers leading families. In fact, I want you to hear me loud and clear, it is unbiblical for men to lead that way. It's unbiblical for men to be manipulative or controlling or coercive or strong-arming with, with their wives and their children. Men are not called to rule their homes with an iron fist. And even if it was biblical, we all know it would be impractical. That kind of leadership does not work. It wouldn't work in my marriage. Y'all know Pastor Gio. If I tried to rule over her with an iron fist, she wouldn't have it. And most all wives wouldn't and shouldn't. Um, they might pretend to respond to that kind of totalitarian, authoritarian leadership at first, but over time, everyone knows that people grow to resent that kind of leadership and eventually to hate that kind of leader. And so when we talk about men who are um, called to lead in their homes, to lead their families. I'd like us to look again at the last part of this uh, story we've been studying in Luke chapter 15, this amazing, famous story that Jesus tells of the father with two sons. And so, um, so far we've only talked about the father and the younger son. There's this great final chapter of that story that is about um, the father's relationship with the older son. So you can follow along in your study guides or on the screens, as always, uh, Luke 15, verses 25 through 32. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. 
And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and, you, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So this is just another extraordinary example of how a father leads his family well. And Jesus is teaching us something that's worth listening to. First of all, we have this father going to his younger son and, uh, and addressing his problems um, on his terms. And now he's running toward the older son who's upset. And rightfully so, this, any of us would be upset in this older son's place because he's been the good guy here. He's followed the rules, straight and narrow. He's never disobeyed or dishonored his father like his younger brother has. And on top of all that, now you've got the younger brother coming home, probably being reinstated as a son again. And so even though he's gone and squandered one-third of his father's wealth, one-third of the family heritage, um, now he's probably being reinstated so that when his father dies, he'll receive one-third again, one-third of what should rightfully belong to the older brother. And so it just seems like a raw deal, a bad deal for the older brother. And so the father goes to the older um, son and, and pleads with him and begs him to rejoin the party. And here in this in interaction, in this exchange, we see this um, lesson, this masterclass in fatherhood that Jesus is trying to show us. Um, and, and I see three things happening here I want to talk to you all about with the rest of our time today. There's three ways a father leads his family through crises like this, and fathers today, myself included, we need to take note. First of all, is that this kind of biblical leadership that Jesus calls us toward is never abusive, but it's always assertive. It's never abusive, but it's always assertive. So dads, we are called to be proactive. We are called to be vigilant, not passive. A lot of people don't know that the first sin that a man committed in the Bible was passivity, nonchalance. It's in Genesis 3, um, verse 6. This is the famous exchange between uh, Eve, the first woman, and the snake, the snake or the serpent in the garden. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. You see, we think Adam's first sin was eating the fruit, eating the apple. It wasn't eating the fruit. It was his passivity because his wife is having this strange conversation with an obvious source of evil, an obvious enemy. This snake is convincing her to do something that God clearly said not to do in Adam's presence, and he doesn't say anything. He can't be bothered. He's either distracted or oblivious. He's just not paying attention. And so his first sin actually probably happened before Eve's first sin when he's just not being vigilant, proactive, protective, and assertive with his families. This is the way God calls men to lead our families is by being vigilant, 
being protective whenever any kind of a threat, any kind of evil or any kind of sin is knocking at our family's door, threatening our family's holiness or well-being or wholeness, any kind of threat to our family, we men have to be um, watching out for. And that's what we see in this father in Jesus' story. He's incredibly assertive. You know how we talk about um, sometimes first responders being heroic because first responders run toward the fire while everyone else is running away from the emergency first responders are running toward it that's the kind of thing we see with this father running toward the fire good dads run toward fires to help put them out to make sure they're being addressed and instead of avoiding um, the situations because sometimes avoiding is is easier this dad runs toward the fire and this doesn't come naturally to most of us most of us would rather avoid conflict. I know I would. I'm naturally wired to want to avoid conflict. I, if I can avoid conflict, I will. I'd rather be the fun dad. I'd rather be the fun dad whose kids come to him to complain about how mean mom is. I would rather be that dad instead of the strict dad. But as a father, I'm not here to have fun. It's not about me being liked or, or accepted or the fun guy. It's my duty, my responsibility to seek out sin and evil and danger um, and address those when they are in our family's midst. And so that's my role. That's your role if you're, if you're a father. That's your role, really, if you're a parent. Um, biblical leadership always means being proactive. Um, but it means being proactive without being overly aggressive. Um, biblical fatherhood is being um, vigilant without being a jerk about it. In his um, instructions to Christian families, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, 14, fathers do not exasperate your children. Exasperate means frustrate or overwhelm or overburden, more literally overburden your children. Fathers do not exasperate your kids. And so dads who lead well don't do so in an overwhelming, overburdening kind of a way. They, they lead with kindness and gentleness. Dads who lead well don't need to, to get all um, emotional or to explode or to detach even. Um, we lead with a steady hand. We can lead with gentleness and self-control. Now, I know you've probably heard the phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child. Even non-Christians, people who aren't super familiar with the Bible, will have heard this phrase, spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, it is uh, an allusion to a Bible verse. People think this is what the Bible says and it's kind of giving permission to Christian or Judeo-Christian fathers to physically punish or discipline our kids. Um, and it's based on a proverb. Um, the proverb in 1324 says, whoever spares the rod hates his children, but he who loves his kids will be careful to discipline them. Now, discipline in this passage, it might mean some kind of um, physical discipline, but it might not mean physical discipline. There's several other examples in the Proverbs of that word discipline, meaning guidance um, or teaching or instruction or wisdom. Um, but even if it does mean physical discipline, it certainly does not mean that fathers are or should take rods to their kids. That is, there is no biblical precedent. It is not okay for us to think about dads or moms um, getting rods and going after their kids. That is just not what this passage, spare the rods, spoil the child, or this proverb means. 
Um, there's, just, there's just no biblical instruction for that. Rods, however, are mentioned in the Old Testament, but never as a tool for abuse or intimidation. This is a, a smaller um, shepherd's rod, um, the kind of thing that people um, who knew the Bible well as it was being written and handed down, they would have known this is what a rod looks like. So if you can think with me of some of the mentions in the Old Testament of rods, shepherd's rods, shepherd's staffs, like the famous 23rd Psalm, um, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Verse 4 of that Psalm says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So rods, shepherd's rods like this one are mentioned again and again in scripture, um, and they are meant to be symbols of identity, symbols of the shepherd's guardianship over, um, over his sheep. And, and so um, shepherds use their rods for, for a few different reasons, um, for a few different purposes. Shepherds use their rods, for example, to uh, ward off any kind of uh, predators or any kind of um, intruders that were um, threatening the flock. And so they might go and, and beat back some predators. Shepherds also were known to um, pretty accurately throw their rods um, beyond the place where their sheep were gathered or where their sheep were wandering. If the sheep were wandering too far, the shepherds would throw the rods beyond that spot so that it landed beyond them and it showed them their boundary. And so they came back closer to the shepherd. There was a saying in Old Testament times, um, how many sheep went under the rod? And at the end of the day, the shepherds would put their rods out like this and the sheep would go under the rods back into the, the keeping area, the, the stables, and they would count them. The shepherds would count their sheep to make sure they were all accounted for. Another use of the shepherd's rod was to uh, sort of separate out um, the, uh, the wool, to dig into the wool and get a better look at the skin to inspect for infections and things that could be wrong, um, wounds or things that could be wrong with a sheep. And so um, shepherd's rods were always used for the sheep's protection, for their guidance, um, and for diagnosis whenever something was going wrong. And so when we think about this Proverbs, uh, sparing the rod, spoiling the child, and things like that, we need to keep in mind that great fathers are called to shepherd our families not with um, intimidation, not with fear, not with aggression or physical punishment, but by proactively looking out for our families, by vigilantly looking out for any threats that might be coming at them, threatening their well-being, threatening their health or their holiness, um, or even to set clear boundaries for our kids whenever they're wandering too far from us. Biblical leadership always looks like that. Second, um, biblical leadership is always bottom up and never top down. Now, everybody knows that the New Testament says wives must submit to their husbands, right? That's one of the most common complaints against Christianity that I hear out on the streets among non-religious Houstonians. Um, and everybody knows that the Bible says while wives just submit to their husbands. Husbands simply have to love our wives. And it doesn't seem fair to women on the face of it because submitting to something sounds harder than loving something. I mean, loving something is a feeling, right? I mean, it should be easy to love something. It's harder 
to submit to something. And granted, um, some Christian men over the years have misused this verse to their own advantage and misread it, misrepresented it, and twisted it to their own ends. Some husbands give their wives the impression that they'll only love them if their wives submit to them. Um, and, and unfortunately for, for these men, that's not the way the Bible puts it. It's certainly not the way the New Testament puts it, um, as if she submits, then I'll love her. In, in Ephesians 5.25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is the key. Thank God, Jesus' love for us wasn't contingent upon our submission to him. He didn't just die for those who were, who were already submissive to his will for their lives. He gave himself up for us freely as a free gift with no regard for his own feelings, with no regard for his own pride. He took the form of a slave, a criminal even, and died that way for us with no strings attached. He didn't require a response or a payment beforehand. Some people um, think the Bible is unfair to women because it expects more of women, submission uh, from women. But in reality, the Bible expects much more from men. And I, I don't know exactly why it is, but when Paul tells men to love their families, um, he's not talking about buying flowers and a card on Valentine's Day. He's talking about the sacrificial love of Christ, laying down your own life, your wants, your desires, your feelings, for your family without counting the cost, without needing anything in return. You don't need payment. You don't need payback. You just love out of full submission to your family and to Christ. Now, wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. In an ideal world, wives will be submissive to their husbands, but husbands will be submissive to their wives and their children, their families, even more. Husbands, fathers, we are called to be the most submissive ones, serving from the bottom up, leading from the bottom up, taking the form of slaves if necessary for the well-being of our families, our wives, and our children. Rick Hoyt was born in 1962 with cerebral palsy. His entire life he was unable to walk or talk on his own. And the doctors, um, when he was born, told his parents that they should institutionalize Rick because um, he would most certainly grow uh, to become a vegetable in a vegetative state. But um, thankfully, his parents chose to bring him home and to raise him as normally as they could for as long as they had him. When Rick was 12 years old, he was given this machine that made it possible for him to communicate with his parents. And he, once he learned how to use the machine, he told his dad that he wanted to participate in a five-mile race that was being advertised in the community. It was a fundraiser to support another young person in the community who had um, become paralyzed. And so Rick's father, Dick Hoyt, entered Rick in the race. And they showed up for the race that morning with Rick in his wheelchair and Dick pushing him um, for five miles uh, through the length of the race. Now they walked most of the way. Dick was not a runner. He had never run in a race before. 
but um, he noticed that Rick loved it so much more whenever they ran together. And so after that day, Dick decided um, that he was going to learn to run. He was going to become a runner, even in middle age. And he'd never really enjoyed running before. I'm not sure if anyone has ever really enjoyed um, running, but he became a runner. He spent the rest of his life training. And so Dick pushed his 110-pound son in his wheelchair for several five-mile races before they graduated to um, half marathons. After a few half marathons, they graduated to marathons. And then marathons became triathlons. And for the swimming portion of the triathlons, the father, Dick, would put his son, Rick, in a raft. He would, he would strap his son into a raft, and then he would tie a rope around himself that was attached to the raft, and the father would swim, pulling his son in a raft behind him, with his son enjoying every second of it. In all, they completed 950 races, including 72 marathons and six Ironman events. And when somebody asked Dick, why he took on such a huge commitment in the second half of his life, he said, because I love my family and because it makes Rick happy. I feel very honored to have the father I have. He has never said no since the very first time I had asked him to push me in a race. Rick and I are out there running because of what Rick said the very first time that we had a race, that his disability disappears. And that really meant a lot to me. I am the motor, I am his arms and his legs. Like I have said before, my dad is my hands and feet. He is the wind beneath my wing. I know y'all are probably sick of hearing me talk about my Oilers. The season's over, but my heart's still with my Oilers, my little league team that I coached this spring. But this really made me think, you know, as my time as a coach, I look back, uh, my best moments as a coach were when it was all about the kids, the boys, you know, when, when it was all about their having fun and whether they were growing, whether they were learning, whether they were becoming better young men, what they were learning. But in my worst moments as a coach, it was all about me and how much I love winning and how much I hate losing and how good I feel about myself whenever we're winning and not losing. Fathers who lead their families well understand that it's never really about us. It's never only about us. It's always about them. It's always about those around us. It's about our families, it's about their happiness, it's about their well-being, their growth, and their holiness, their closeness to Christ. What we see in the Father in this story Jesus tells is that he didn't care about swallowing his pride. He just served his family like a slave. He went and begged, and he didn't attach any strings. He didn't care about saving face. He didn't care about being the man. He just wanted his family to be intact again. He wanted his family to be whole. So... Biblical leadership is always from the bottom up. Third, biblical leadership is always about culture making and not just decision making. Dads lead in our homes by creating culture. And you create culture just by being who you are. I cannot put a finger on it or explain it. I will just tell you that when dad is at home, when dad lives in the home with the family, 
the uh, culture in the home will almost always be a reflection of his heart. And so if the father's heart is um, mired in darkness, if he's in a dark place, if he's mixed up with some bad habits or some addiction, or if he's depressed and it's untreated, then that will be apparent. That dark cloud will sort of hang over the entire home. The culture of the home will be impacted by that father's heart. Now, if that father's heart is anxious, then you will sense some anxiety um, inside his home. If a father's heart, on the other hand, is righteous and selfless and loving and generous and giving, then that's the culture you will perceive under his family's roof. And this sort of thing can't be spoken into existence. It can't be legislated with family meetings. It just happens to a family, to a culture. My great-grandfather ran and owned a general store in the sticks of Northeast Texas um, in the early 1900s. And in those days, um, whites and blacks in uh, the rural South especially weren't supposed to intermingle. Um, and they weren't supposed to have uh, you know, stores or uh, gathering places w where they were um, together. Now, most of my great-granddad's customers were white. And, and uh, at the same time, he also chose to serve the black folks around his community. Part of that was because the closest store for black folks in the community was about 20 miles away. He didn't think it was right that these folks would have to go so far away to just get their basic provisions. And so he welcomed everybody into his store and charged them all the same prices and, and took care of them all in the same way. But he faced a lot of scrutiny for that decision. He lost a lot of customers, white customers, for that decision. He got called a lot of nasty names because he served black folks just like he served white folks. Now, um, he never really talked about it. It wasn't something that he was really uh, known to, to brag about. It's just who he was. What's interesting, though, is that 30 years later, in the 1950s, his son, my grandfather, was working full-time in a hardware store near his home in Northeast Texas. When, um, while working, he witnessed the store owner overcharging some black customers for some items that they were buying. When my grandfather pointed out what he thought was a mistake um, to the store owner, to his boss, he was told to keep quiet. He was told something about there being a black tax that um, was imposed on some of their customers. And so my grandpa, who at the time had six mouths to feed at home, including a newborn baby, took off his uh, hardware store work apron and he laid it on the counter and he walked out. He quit his job on the spot because he couldn't be a part of such a company, he couldn't be a part of it. He knew better because that's how his dad raised him. That's the way, that's the culture in which he was raised. Now, my grandfather didn't talk about it. In fact, the first time I heard this story was last year at his funeral. Uh, it's just who he was. Fast forward 30 more years to the 1980s. My dad, my grandfather's son, was working in a paper mill in southwest Arkansas. My parents were very young, in their early 20s, and my family um, was barely getting by. I was a baby and my sister um, was a little older than me. Um, my mom was cutting hair part-time and my dad was at this mill and 
and he was working himself to the bone. He worked at that mill for four years, and finally he was approached by his supervisors about a, uh, a promotion. And this promotion would mean basically taking two steps up the corporate ladder. It would mean leapfrogging his supervisor. And my father's supervisor at the time was an African-American woman who was in her late 40s who had worked at that same paper mill for 20 years, whereas my father had only worked there for four. He knew her to be a solid employee, always on time, willing to take extra hours. He knew that she had mouths to feed at home too. When he was offered that promotion that our family, frankly, could have used, he turned it down because that's not who he was. Now, he never talked about it. It's just who he is. Proverbs 20 says in verse 7, blessed are the children of righteous men who walk with integrity. Blessed are the children of righteous men who walk with integrity. I have been blessed so richly by the culture that my dad and grandfather and great-grandfather chose to set in their homes by being the men that they were, the men that God created them to be. And because of that, I've been raised since birth to see every person of every race as a fully human being. And I just think what an amazing gift that was that those men gave to me. And it's a gift that not everyone that grew up where I grew up was given. It's a tremendous gift. It's made a tremendous impact on my life. And it is a reminder of the impact a father can have, the power of a dad who chooses to set this kind of Christ-like culture in his home, under his roof. And that kind of legacy that you leave, it, it outlives you. It extends beyond the four walls of your house. And it is such a gift that you, dad, can give to your family and to the world around you. The best dads don't only father your, your own kids and raise up your own kids. You're always looking for someone who needs to know the love and leadership that a father can provide. This is your opportunity. Leadership is not a right. Leadership is a privilege. And with that kind of power, that kind of privilege, we have this burden, this responsibility to serve those around you. Dads, I'm calling on you to be the leaders God created you to be, to lead your families, and to lead your community in ways that speak to the grace and the forgiveness, the selfless love of Christ. That's the reason you were created. That's the reason you were given this privilege, is to leave a legacy that outlasts you and that extends beyond your reach so that one day people will sit around and tell stories about the way you selflessly, graciously loved, and they will benefit from the ways you walked with integrity. Would you join me in prayer as we close this series now? Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and showing us the love of our Father, our Heavenly Father. You showed us with stories like this one about a man and his two sons, all the ways that a father can impact the world around him and change the world for good. And you also remind us of the ways that our God loves us and looks at us and wants to chase after us and restore us and bring us back into the party that he's throwing. Lord, help us 
to swallow our pride, especially the men in the room. Help us to be the men you created us to be, to swallow our pride, to not feel the need to, to be the man, to flaunt our aggression or our strength or our power, but just to serve humbly, to lead from the bottom up, Lord, and to put others before our, ourselves. Lord, thank you for this privilege of leadership. And I pray that the men in this room and indeed all of us who bear the name of Christ would live with the courage, the courage to lead and love those around us the way that you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus, for all the ways you've changed our lives. We pray in your precious name. Amen.